Now, as we look in your word again, would your Holy Spirit just enliven our hearts to its truth so that our hearts would be warmed with faith in Jesus and affection for God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it was uh, the winter of 2006, maybe 2007. I was at the tender age of about 37, 38, I think. I can't quite remember which year it was. And I was playing uh, at a pretty elite level of football, running around in the Yakandanda seconds in the TDFL. Uh, I found myself on the receiving end of... Uh, a tackle from from three pretty enthusiastic meter footballers and in the ensuing kind of pounding of my head because they love to do that sort of stuff and the crunching of human flesh my leg got caught in the tackle and it just folded the wrong way which actually just snapped my ACL clean off whatever it attaches to and it jammed down and dug a hole in my tibia and chipped a bit of the bone off the top of it. Uh, That resulted in an operation and 12 months, very frustrating, a rehab. And just to add insult to the injury, I got a post-op blood clot in my calf muscle that was about 13 centimetres long, like fun times to be had there. The wash-up of all that meant that I didn't use my right leg uh, for a good couple of months. Well, not in any kind of meaningful way anyway. And when I finally got into physio and got back to rehab, my calf muscle had basically disappeared. You see, it's a universal law that without resistance, without exercise, uh, without kind of trauma, muscles don't grow. They don't develop. In fact, they, they atrophy. And the only way to build that muscle tissue back up was to go through uh, the very painful and, and disciplined process of rehab, which, which involved exercising that, but also, also working on the remaining fibers to tear them down and then build them back up with stronger fibers, um, bigger ones, so that my, my, my leg could do what I needed it to do, hold my knee in place. And I could have said, oh, you know what, that's just too uncomfortable, too painful. Isn't there an easier way to, to do this? No, there's simply not. Muscles grow, they get strong through uh, work, through, through trauma. And without that, you know, I just wouldn't have the, the use of my leg uh, doing the things, uh, the rigorous demands that I ask of it these days. I also uh, sit in a very privileged window um, as a chaplain of Melbourne United. Uh, and before COVID turned up, I used to be able to get in and watch these, these athletes, these very fit athletes, uh, push their bodies to the physical limits, like going hard, uh, uh, you know, like GPS trackers, catapult uh, uh, stuff on them, monitoring their, their, their growth in speed, their endurance, their vertical leap, their recovery, heart rates, all this kind of stuff. And if you were, to, if you were silly enough to interrupt them in one of these sessions and say, hey, you know, how, how's this going, guys? They would literally jam a basketball uh, down your throat. But ask them, do they love the reward of playing basketball? Do they love what all that hard work brings? Do they love what the perseverance through that brings them? Then they just light up with joy because they know that their experience and their joy of basketball comes through the hard work and the pain of, of training, of pushing their bodies to the limits, of persevering in that space. I've also been married for 24 years now. Happy birthday, Sam. Oh, no, not happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> happy birthday, Valentine's Day. Um, we might see each other. We parted ways at about 5 o'clock this morning. I don't know when Sandy will get home. She's a florist. Um, but I've been married for 24 years. And here's what I've discovered. 
marriage is hard work. It's beautiful, but it's also painful. And the greatest beauty in marriage always lies on the other side of pain. This idea that you find a soulmate, that you discover a soulmate, that's like a Disneyland fantasy. You do not find soulmates. You build soulmates. You build them in a furnace. You build them and mold them through trials and adversity. That's how soulmates are made. Ask anyone uh, in marriage or out of marriage, regardless, that the strongest, most intimate relationships are the ones born out of adversity, born out of hardship. Now, just a quick clarification. I'm not talking about abuse in a relationship. That builds nothing. It has no place in a marriage. It has no place in anything. It has no place in society. However, in a marriage, you put two sinful, uh, self-centered people with radically different family of origin um, issues in a room together for life, and you are bound to have conflict but good conflict where every insecurity, every vulnerability is challenged and rebuilt into something stronger, something more mature. But only if you persevere, only if you consider that maybe this is an opportunity to grow, that maybe this person that I'm married to sees something in me that I don't see and they're they're helping me grow. The alternative to that is that marriage is just a train wreck. You give up, it's too hard, or you just go your own separate ways in the same room. But if you let marriage do the work it's designed to do, to grow you into people worth being married to, and trust me, you do not start that way, you need to grow there, then then you'll reap the rewards of that. Deep joy, beauty, all these kinds of things um, will come. And I could say that about every aspect of life, I I reckon. I've mentioned three in my own life. I could talk about school. I could talk about work, parenting, health, and and say it's it's hard at times. It's difficult. These things have trials. But unless you do the work in these trials, unless you use the tools and the wisdom at your disposal, building resilience, developing maturity, you are never going to see the full beauty and, and experience the full range of any of these areas of life. They, they will always just be a shadow. They'll always be, be a cheap knockoff. And maybe you might, in the end, fold in these things, give up in these things, become bitter even about some of these things. You just give up and miss out. Tell me I'm, tell me I'm making this up. Tell me I'm being dramatic. Tell me that the richest experiences in life, the stories with the greatest meaning, uh, the sweetest success, the ones that bring... Joy are not the ones on the other side of adversity and hardship, of doubt and uncertainty. We grow physically, mentally, uh, relationally and emotionally, intellectually through, through wise uh, perseverance. When these environments are under test and trial, when they're challenged and our richest stories are the ones of what we've learned in these trials, how these things have shaped us, how they've grown us, how trials have helped us become more balanced, more intimate, uh, more matured people. Why then, if God has designed every other aspect of life to grow through perseverance, do we get bent out of shape when God says, that's how you grow spiritually? That's how you grow in relationship with me. 
That's how you and I build a story of faith that, that equips you to know me and to enjoy me. And out of that, live life the way I designed for your deep joy and your eternal reward. You know, the Christian life is not maintained and matured by the Holy Spirit just sprinkling magic Jesus dust on you each morning, inoculating you to reality rather than subjecting you to it, to be shaped by it. The Christian faith is a product of persevering through trials and environments, allowing the wisdom of God encountered in His Word. We have His Bible uh, found in the person of Jesus, found in the teaching of Jesus. Or those things applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit, they come along and they rebuild and they strengthen what's lacking in us, what we can't see in ourselves. They refine and renew what's damaged. They lead us to joy and stories of meaning and maturity, rich in their encounter of growth, rich in their relationship with God. But most of all, the goal of trials in a Christian life is to become like Jesus in character, in obedience, uh, in, in, in expectancy and, and intimacy with God. Uh, to be complete, to add to our story what we lack. That's what this word complete, when he says to be complete and to be perfect, he's talking about gaining something that you don't have, something that you lack, genuine faith, faith that's been around the block. And Jesus, uh, James sorry, wants to get straight at it. So he places the issue of suffering and hardship uh, and adversity in this position of prominence in his letter right at the beginning. And James clears up or he hits head on the idea that Christians get put on a different set of tracks when it comes to suffering and hardship, that their experience of some things, these things should be somehow mitigated by their faith. You know, if God, if God loves us, uh, surely he wouldn't let us suffer, you know, surely he wouldn't let us have hardships. Well, maybe like little ones, you know, but, but not devastating ones, not overwhelming stuff. No, says James. Uh, whatever can happen to any person in this broken and fallen world can and will happen to any Christian. The difference that James is going to describe is in interpretation, as in, in approach to these things. James says, when you meet, not if, not just in case, who knows, but when you meet trials. And who is James talking to? Who are these people that are going to win some trials? Are they, are they Christians with poor faith? Are they, are they people who haven't been paying attention? No, he says, my brothers. That's how he starts. Which is shorthand for men and women who share a common faith in Jesus. That's the scope in which James uses this word Adelphoi. It's, it's wide in its inclusion and it's narrow in its object. Anyone who has a faith in Jesus, all Christians, no one is exempt. There's no qualifications. If you love Jesus and your goal is to be like him, you will meet trials. Meet trials of various kinds. You know, no one's greater than their master, right? Again, James is being intentionally broad and inclusive. He casts a wide net because he knows that if he, if he just lists uh, specific trials... 
like. He just mentions the particular trials that a particular group of people that he's writing to are facing, like being exploited in court for their Christian faith, like being marginalized, impoverished and impoverished because their faith is seen as a, as a perversity. It's perverse to society. It's kind of a little bit like living in Victoria. Then, then religious persecution would be, would be seen as the particular trials through which God makes Christians perfect and complete. And because we tend towards that kind of stupidity, we would make categories of which trials are one God is interested in and which trials he's not. But James says various trials. These, these various trials are things in our surrounding environment, our surrounding in relationships that are, uh, that are challenging Or or they can be uh, inner wrestles, uh, enticements within us to sin. They can be challenges and trials towards temptation. Both our external and our internal worlds face trials of many kinds, of various kinds. So it it can be like from a stubbed toe to aggressive cancer. It can be from a failing marriage to a, a failing career. Or, Or conversely, it could be that you have a wildly successful Life, Because trials are not merely about disadvantage, they're also about opportunity. Either, they can, either of these things can tempt you into sin. Either of these things can cause you to be self-sufficient. They can cause you to be self-wise. Uh, they can cause you to not need God or not think you need God. Or they can cause you to blame God. That's why James says in, in, in verses 9 to 12 that both the lowly and the rich need to be mindful of what they make much of. Is it in the things that fade, either in trials or accomplishment? Or is it in how the provision of God's gospel in Jesus, which humbles the proud and lifts up the lowly to faith, comes, comes to both equally? The rich delight in how the gospel has shown them their real need of dependency in God. And the lowly delight when they reflect on how God didn't overlook them, how God didn't reject them but lifted them up so that they too could encounter this dependency and this relationship and trust in God. In all things, our boast, our wisdom is about how Jesus brought us to a place where we could trust God and see Jesus as sufficient. And and, and James goes on to say, blessed is the person who continues in that vein, who steadfastly sees God as good and Jesus as sufficient in trials. The joy of that experience in this life will eventually find its full expression in eternity. So the little tastes of faith, the, the beauty and the goodness of that in this broken world, when we get to eternity, will be like a banquet where you are the guest of honor, crown on your head. That's the reward. That's what awaits for a faith that perseveres, uh, that, that sees God as good and Jesus as sufficient. It's not like the faith of the secularist that says uh, all you will ever receive out of life, it, it happens now. It's, it, all we have is now. And so uh, you have things that fade and things that perish uh, through trials and adversity that, that end with the grave. If we lose them, then that's all we had. Not so, you Christians. Trials do not rob you of all that you have. But rather what they do is they they push you. They ask you to consider what is eternal, what is ultimate, what what should be our greatest treasure, God and his goodness, Jesus and his sufficiency for us. 
James says, my brother, my, my siblings in Christ, you are to adopt this particular approach to trials uh, of various kinds. You are to consider it or count it uh, as uh, all joy or pure joy. Now, James is not saying that having cancer is, should be considered as joy. It, it, it's not. It's a terrible violation of, of human life. Uh, of, of, of things. James is not saying uh, that when we're struggling with addiction that that should be a joy. That's, a, again, a terrible violation of human worship. James is not telling us how to feel. Of course trials make us feel sad. Of course trials get us angry. Of course trials can make us overwhelmed at times. James is not saying he just, you know, just put on a happy face and, and kind of skate through. That's not what James is doing. What James is doing is he is telling us how to think how to consider, how to work through these things. There is an approach that we need to adopt, a particular way to consider or to count, to think through what's going on. And that approach to trials and suffering, to temptation, is to say, is to remind ourselves of of who God is. I know God and I know he's for my good and he loves me. So suffering, no suffering, no trial, no temptation uh, can possibly be meaningless. It might not be good. It might be truly horrific, but it's not meaningless. It may well be that dark night of the soul that we looked at in Psalm 22, but it's not something that God is unconcerned about. And it's not something that he's not available in or unapproachable in. Trials are not God's displeasure or his need you know, to test you. God's not needy. He's not insecure, but he is present in all things that are common to all people. And the Christian is the one who identifies, who considers that, who thinks about that, and then begins to secure their soul exclusively to that, to that framework, to that knowledge, to, to, to God in the storm. James says... Consider what it is that God can accomplish in us. What, what it is that God can transform in me if I persevere, not aimlessly, but, but, but faithfully. Uh, is this trial approached with steadfast faith that sees opportunity to gain more of the most valuable thing on earth? Faith. Faith that is complete, lacking nothing, maturity, uh, depth of relationship with God. Now, when, when James says that you know you you'll gain uh, perfect and complete, what what he's saying is that you will gain something you lack. You'll add to what's not there. Like muscles in rehab, like marriages, faith grows through discomfort. Faith needs pushback of trials for us to grow spiritually. It's a humbling landscape, but it's a comforting one in that it actually has a purpose. Suffering isn't meaningless. It's not some uh, indifferent, just uh, abstraction of a blind universe. It's not robbing you of all you have. Maybe it's exposing that you have disordered love priorities, that you love things that fade more than you love the goodness of God. And this is not to say that you should love your wife any less, you should love your car, your health, uh, your Tika 308 any less. No, love those good things, but it's a love of God as supreme treasure, as supremely good, that will hold you in place when those things break down, when those things fade, when those things 
disappoint you. And James builds his case for how we approach trials. Uh, He's not switching topics from trials to wisdom. He's saying the approach to trials is not just to persevere with, you know, white-knuckled determination, kind of stoic fortitude, but to ask for wisdom. This, 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 This asking of wisdom is connected to the trial. The key to letting steadfast faith produce a perfect and complete faith is the asking of wisdom. And again, as I said, this phrase perfect and complete means the acquisition or the growth, the development of what you lacked. It's not talking about you actually being perfect, but adding to what you don't have. Just as trials can develop what we lack spiritually, uh, what we lack in our faith, asking God for wisdom demonstrates our awareness of our lack of understanding of how to proceed in a trial, how to, how to interpret the environment, environment properly. James is saying you're only in a trial alone if you choose to be. It is healthy, not weak. It is not a sign of faithlessness to realize how much we don't know and how little we are equipped to navigate trials, that we need extra wisdom, that we need uh, internal, uh, external wisdom coming into our lives. Now, listen, hey, this is one of the reasons why we need Christians who persevere so that we can have around us brothers and sisters who know what it is to go through a trial, who know what it is to grieve, who know what it is to lose something, and that they can sit with other people who are going through the same things and pray with them and journey with them and help them get into the Bible, that they can bear one another's burdens. Too many Christians just kind of tap out oh geez this wasn't in my five year plan God man I'm dipping out of this we need Christians who can persevere so that we can build a community that gets around other people who find themselves in the storm our faith community is weaker for Christians who just go oh this this wasn't on my plan what are you doing God But James encourages us to ask God for wisdom by reminding us of what God's like, of how willing, how gracious, and how generous He is to answer our prayers, to meet us when we need wisdom. He says God gives generously. He's not tight-fisted with His wisdom. God's not you know, preferential or selective with who He gives wisdom to. It's not reserved for special types of Christians, ones that have been to Bible college or or ones that start their daily prayer routine at 4 a.m. in the morning and and read 18 chapters of the Bible before breakfast. God gives wisdom without finding fault. And what that means is that in the midst of suffering and trials, that you can come to God angry. You can come to God broken. You can come to God bent out of shape. You don't need to make yourself respectable and perfect. God's not going to respond to you with, oh, well, you made your bed. You've got to lie in it. He will not say, you know, give me a break. Can't you handle this yourself? Can you see I'm busy running the universe? He's not going to withhold himself from you. James is thinking here of Jesus teaching about God in Matthew and the Sermon of the Mount. You know, you ask, seek, knock. Um, and God will be, you know, he will be there to answer. He will be able to be found. He will open the door. He will let you in. Jesus says, if you fathers who are sinful know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven, who is actually good, give gifts to those who ask him? That's what James is tapping in on here. 
But having established our needs and God's character and God's generosity, what comes next is a bit of a shock. When we ask for wisdom, because that's the context of this whole little part here, not, not when we ask for a new car, when we ask for a cure to cancer, but how to live in the need of those things, we must believe and not doubt, or we can expect no wisdom, we can expect nothing from God. Is James now saying that anyone who approaches God with anything but absolute un, uns, unswaving uh, certainty should expect nothing from this generous, loving gracious God. No. James has just given us a description of God's uh, uh, sincerity and undivided loyalty toward us. Now what he's saying is we should approach him in the same way that he's approaching us. We should have a singleness of loyalty. Uh, The appeal to have an approach of faith that has no doubt is not about the complete absence of doubt but about the presence of spiritual integrity. And as James unpacks this approach of not doubting, we see that he means someone who is, don't be double-minded, don't have split loyalties, someone who hedges um, their, their bets. That's the description of this person. Now, I was coming into the church on Friday night just to sort a few things out, uh, get ready for our stream uh, today and as I came in, and Meg and her crew were downstairs having a few drinks, and, and Meg said, uh, "Could we just put up a few prayers uh, on Sunday so that this lockdown is only five days long? That'd be great if you guys could dial that one in." And I said, "Okay, no worries, we'll do that. But if this lockdown is five days, we'll see you all at church the following Sunday." And that's when someone said, "Oh, we're approaching all deities, not just yours. We're praying all of them." And I just sort of said, "Well, that's not the lane we roll in. We pray exclusively to one God." And that's James's point here. When you pray, your heart uh, may actually have doubt. Uh, You know, is God going to answer? Is God going to give me wisdom? Will I get wisdom? Will I get what I need? What you can't have is divided loyalties. In your doubt, pray to God only. In your heart, believe that the wisdom you need can only be found in God. Don't be praying to God and then reading the astronomy forecast in the paper. Don't be praying to God and then seeing what Oprah's got on a podcast for you. Don't check out what the Bible has, the Word of God has for us, and then be going and going, oh, contemporary culture and society, uh, get our advice from there. Don't be hedging your bets. This person will receive nothing from God. Don't be like the person who's kind of who's stepping off the bank, a solid sort of foundation, and into a boat which has and finds that the two tensions are incompatible, and then next thing they're into the drink. One foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the wisdom of the world. God says, Bring that doubting heart to me, but bring it to me alone. It is the person with spiritual integrity and loyalty that God gives wisdom to. You're either approaching God uh, like a singular formed uh, barrel wave that's rising up and, and, and heading to the shore in one strong, consistent form. It's the kind of wave that Tim Beeching or Steve Kennedy would like to find themselves on. It, it's just a long, beautiful barrel, consistent in its form. You can be like that, or you can be like the bay out here on a windy day. Nothing ever forms up. One wave is swallowed by another. 
and nothing ever takes shape. Nothing has the same texture, the same direction, the same strength about it. You can't approach God with a faith like that. James is not telling us to work ourselves up into some zone where we have vanquished all doubt, as if that's possible in our present state of weakness. No, James is saying when trials come, be singularly focused. Be like that, that ra- wave that's forming and heading towards the shore and trusting in God. It's the place where wisdom uh, to be steadfast is found. And there you will find an anchor for your soul, not unstable surfaces in tension. Keep reading. When trials come, keep reading your Bible. When trials come, keep uh, praying. When trials come, keep going to church. When trials come, keep getting into your small group. Uh, Trials are not a time to look around and say, oh, what else is out there? What else can I try? What other practices could I bring into my life? It's a time to strengthen the ones that already exist, the ones that God has given you. And God says, hey, there's my boy. I got him. Now, there's a whole section. And just the way I wrote, I wrote my sermon. I kind of folded it in from the two outsides. So I got to this section in the middle on the responsibility of sin. And we, we haven't time today uh, to get into that. But to say that God just hates sin and has no desire for us to be trapped in it or wounded by it. The idea that God uh, uses trials to tempt us is in the complete opposite direction of his loyalty and love for us. He's just simply not going to do that. Temptation that leads to sin is on us. God's only goal in all things is our growth and our well-being. It's another sermon. We may get back into it another time. But in verses 17 and 18, as we kind of closing out this passage, again, we see here James doubles down on the goodness of God by saying, remember who God is and what he's already done. God is sovereign, James said. He's the father of lights. Like not even the sun came into existence without him. God is behind all that there is in the universe and he reigns over every corner of the universe. And this God is poised to hear from you. This God takes interest in being a part of your life and being a part of the trial. Like that's Psalm 8, right? Yeah. He's not laying a trap for sin. He's the alternative to these things. It's just what does our hearts treasure? What, which way are we going to go? Are we going to be double-minded or are we going to be singly focused? God is dependable. While God made all things in the universe, He is unlike the universe in a very important way. He never changes. He never shifts. Uh, a shadow cast by His glory will not move. It's fixed. Uh, its point of origin never diminishes, never diverts. God can always be trusted to be there, to be consistent, to never change in his goodness and his desire for our well-being. And in God is gracious. God freely chose to give us new birth, to make us all brothers and sisters in Jesus, not because we were deserving or impressive, but because he is gracious and loving. The means of this new birth, of having our hearts transformed and made wise, is by the gospel, the word of truth. And here we see the full extent of God's singular loyalty, his steadfastness and his love of us to bring us into the reward that he has for us. The word of truth is an alternative phrase for the gospel. 
which tells us that the wisdom of God was made known in the death of Jesus on a cross. Like Paul fleshes that out in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. Here we see how God made it possible for both rich and lowly people of all stations in life to come into relationship with God where we were not held with reproach, where we didn't have to kind of clean ourselves up. We weren't required to do anything but to approach the cross with need, to seek its wisdom as the only place where sin is dealt with and we are brought back into a relationship with God. On that cross, Jesus was steadfast. On that cross were the greatest trials and sufferings you could ever imagine sought to tear Jesus apart, sought to divide his heart. But he was undivided in his loyalty to the Father as good and his love for you and me. And that held him there and he persevered until the work of the cross was completed, until the work of the cross was perfect. When we lose stuff... Uh, when, when trials tear us apart, and they will, we need to remember what God lost in order to gain us, in order to be, for us to come into a place where we could approach Him. In actual fact, God didn't lose anything. He gave it. it. It wasn't taken from Him. He actually gave. But when you want to measure the love of God for you, when, when you want to be, be, uh, know that he, he is someone to approach in wisdom, uh, in a trial, it, it can't be the trial itself. It, it must be the cross. There God showed his loyalty and his goodness to us. That's the anchor for our soul. If it was the message of the cross, the word of truth, that brings us into this Christian life, if that's what brought us in to the Christian life, if that's what got us into a relationship with God, then that's got to be what holds us there. Here's where we see that no matter what happens in life, it cannot mean that God doesn't love me. When you you see all that God has done for us in Jesus, that holds you in place. That becomes the deepest treasure in your life. And then the message of that starts to web its way out into all the different trials, various trials of our lives. That's the wisdom that we need when we face trials. That's That's the default position that we've got to go to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word to us this morning as we, as we begin this letter of James. Uh, and, we, and, and straight off the bat, James says trials and adversity. Before we get to anything, let's understand that they are going to be common to the Christian. Uh, but we have a God who knows what it is to go through ultimate trial and ultimate adversity, that he might bring us back into relationship with him. And as our hearts shift and move around, would, would they secure themselves in the fact Uh, that God is for us, uh, that he is for our well-being, and he has done much to get us to a space where we can seek him. And we thank you for that, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.